Welcome to Merkaba Chakras, where we talk Buddhism in the fifth dimension. A Buddha is someone who's awake within the matrix and co-creating with divinity as a soul having a human experience. Each enlightened episode is dedicated to help you level up the energy field of your Merkaba. You can manifest the parallel reality that fits the best version of you. This podcast is for entertainment purposes and does not necessarily reflect the views of the host or replace any medical or legal advice. Now, let's welcome your host, author Von Galt, and her guest. Welcome to another episode of Merkaba chakras podcast today i get the honor of interviewing psychedelic researcher and author martin ball phd martin ball's journey to consciousness came through his desire to seek infinite knowledge about existence now his unique journey took him to shamanic ayahuasca rituals psychedelic mushrooms and eventually 5-MeO-DMT. His experience with 5-MeO-DMT plunged him into the realm of infinite consciousness. He has written many, many books on the subject. Among them is Being Infinite, an Entheogenic Odyssey into the Limitless, Eternal, a memoir from ayahuasca to zen now martin welcome to Merkava chakras let's talk consciousness all right well thanks for having me here yeah i'm super i always say i'm super excited to talk to everybody i'm so honored <laughs> um and i am as well because i have been following your um your journey from your first book to all the ones that you've been doing as well because you know i um as a Buddhist, we got to keep an open mind so that we can see how other people see the Dharma and maybe get some good nuggets as well to kind of help us in our own manifestation of the Dharma to experience. So I really do enjoy your take on it. So before we get into your discoveries about infinite consciousness, let's rewind back in the time and... Um, can you tell us your story for how you got into researching spiritual psychedelics? Well, um, really, I guess that story would go all the way back to high school. Um, as a high school student, I, that was when I first learned that philosophy was like a job that people could have. And, um, you know, that people could sit around and just contemplate the nature of reality and the nature of existence. And that that was like a thing that people did. And of course, you know, we were studying like Greek philosophy and French philosophy, things like that. And um, so that, that kind of got my interest in ideas of, you know, what is the nature of being? What is the nature of reality? What is knowledge? How do we know what we know versus what we think we know? You know, epistemology, ontology, things like that. And when I graduated from high school, um, I, I was a, a lucky high school student. Um, you know, we were, 
just talking about the 80s before we got on um, interviewing here, recording the interview. And it's kind of like, I was one of those kids, like if you picture an 80s movie where um, you're kind of one of the, one of the oddballs, one of the outcasts, but you have, you have a really cool teacher, you know, but you don't fit in at the high school. Well, that was me. And so I, I had a really cool teacher, her name, um, her last name was Scully. We just called her Scully, uh, Patricia Scully, Pat Scully. And she was my English teacher and also my drama teacher. And it was in my English class that we were actually reading philosophy. And uh, the day after I graduated high school, I stopped by, I lived close to the high school. So I was, it was just walking somewhere and I saw that her office door was open and I went over to her office like, hey, Skelly, what's up? And she had a book on her desk and the book was Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind about Buddhism. And I picked it up and I was just kind of leaking through it. And she said, oh, Martin, I think you'd really like this book. Um, you know, why don't you take it home? Why don't you borrow it? It's like, okay, great. And so this is my first exposure to Buddhism. And it was written by a Japanese author. I think it's D.T. Suzuki. It's been a long time. Um, but at the time, you know, it was my first exposure to Buddhism. I even thought Buddhism came from Japan. I mean, that's how little I knew about it. You know, I'm reading this book about Zen Buddhism. But what really struck me, you know, I grew up in a scientific materialist, materialist, atheist household, you know, no religion, no spirituality, anything like that. And I'd grown up around a lot of rather fundamentalist Christians. Um, my own family on my dad's side uh, were Mormon, though my dad was not Mormon. I was not raised Mormon in any way. But I had a fairly negative view of religion that I saw a lot of science denying, reality denying people um, adhering to beliefs that to me just seemed laughably absurd. Um, you know, I'm, I must admit, I'm not a fan of Christianity um, or the, really the Western religions. Really I got that from reading some of your books. Yeah, <laughs> so. that got me into Buddhism. And then when I went to college, I was a philosophy major and got involved in a Zen Buddhist group, uh, meditation group, um, my first year of college. And then I really wanted to study Buddhist philosophy. But uh, philosophy departments really only teach European philosophy, that really they're misnamed. That if you go to any college or university, you go to their philosophy department, it should be named European and or Euro-American philosophy because that's all that they teach. And the general position of philosophy professors is that Westerners have philosophy and people from the East, well, they have religion. So I ended up having to go into religious studies in order to study Buddhist philosophy um, and got more involved in that. And then just based on my interests, you know, friends had suggested that I try uh, psilocybin mushrooms because it's like, oh, well, you're interested in the nature of mind, you're interested in the nature of reality. Well, maybe you should have a psychedelic experience. So that, that happened between my first and second year of college. So it all kind of went together with what I was studying in school and my own interests and just my um, budding curiosity around what is the nature of consciousness? What is the nature of reality? So that's how I got started, but it's a long story. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's um, it's a beautiful story, and um, the the Buddhists would tell you that your your upbringing was part of your story. It was part of your journey, 
um, to kind of spice up a little bit your journey towards um, where you are right now. So, um, you know, it, that it, everybody's going to come into themselves a little bit different. And that was your process. Now, I'm glad that you're able to manage a healthy relationship with psychedelics. Um, and you tried ayahuasca and DMT, but you end up settling with 5-MeO DMT. And for some people, I mean, I've done research into ayahuasca and DMT, and they are life-changing for some people, and they stop right there. But for you, you made um, 5-MeO DMT your tool of choice for establishing a connection to infinite consciousness. Um, now, isn't it just for people who are not aware of 5-MeO-DMT, DMT, it's a type of DMT. And isn't 5-MeO-DMT also found in the glands of the Sonoma frogs in Arizona and surrounding areas? Is that the same kind of thing? Yeah, well, it's the Sonoran Desert Toad. It is the only toad species in the world that produces 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine. Um, in general, toads produce what is called bufotamine. And that also is another form of DMT. I think it's 5-HO-DMT. Um, but that tends to function as a neurotoxin. You know, so toads, you know, they secrete these chemicals uh, to ward off predators, you know, so like a coyote comes up and, you know, tries to bite the toad and secretes it and like, ah, you know, the uh, coyote freaks out, drops the toad, toad gets away. Um, and so all toads produce a form of DMT, again, but that's bufotomy. And the 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine, yes, it's only produced by the Sonoran Desert toad. And it's one of the few animal species in the world um, that produces any kind of psychedelic in excess. Uh, but keep in mind, all mammals on planet Earth, including you and including me, we all produce DMT and 5-MeO-DMT inside our bodies naturally. So right, it's, it's, right. it's present in all mammals. So explain to people what DMT is, you know, because DMT is a long word for... Uh, yeah, well, so. D DMT is dimethyltryptamine. Um, the, the key there is tryptamine. Tryptamine is this basic indole molecule. And again, this is, it's actually, the indole molecule is produced in more, most life forms. And so the basic building blocks for DMT is available in everything from insects to plants to mammals. Um, it's part of our natural neurochemistry and biogenetic makeup. Um, so Dimethyltryptamine is a variation of the tryptamine molecule, and then you get another variation on that same molecule, and then you can get something like 5-MeO-DMT, then also psilocybin and psilocin, which is in, um, quote-unquote, magic mushrooms, is also right. a variation of the basic DMT molecule, as is serotonin, which is one of our basic neurotransmitters, right. has the same tryptamine base form. And also melatonin, uh, which is our sleep hormone or our sleep neurotransmitter mm -hmm. produced mm -hmm. in the body, um, and also tryptophan. So we have a variety of different neurotransmitters that are available inside the body that are based off of the tryptamine molecule. And you just you add or subtract um, different atoms to that basic molecule, and then you get a wide variety of 
uh, neurotransmitters. And some of them are profoundly psychedelic and, and others are just normal everyday waking consciousness. Right, right. I mean, so we produce it now just so people just because just so people know, you know, don't go running around Arizona trying to catch all the Sonoma frogs in everybody's yard <laughs> or anything. Yeah, leave, okay. leave the toads alone. Leave the leave toads alone. The toads. Okay. My middle name is in Laos is Gulp. Okay. So I am a toad. And if you lick me, you're not going to get a psychedelic trip. <laughs> so. Yeah. And you, would, you wouldn't get it from the Sonoran Desert toads either that, um, you, you, well, you, you, you take the secretions and they have to be dried and then the secretions are smoked or vaporized. But licking it, we actually have enzymes in our digestive system that you can't take it orally. Um, uh, my personal belief is that this is probably an evolutionary advantage because as human beings are going around the planet and eating different plants and eating um, different animals, given that animals produce DMT and 5-MeO-DMT, um, if we didn't have these enzymes in our stomach, that we might eat something and then just start tripping. So right. they, they, these enzymes prevent it from being taken orally. Exactly. So not everybody's Mikey. <laughs> so yeah. give it to Mikey. No, you know, everybody's Mikey. So just so you guys know, um, there is a process to 5-MLDMT, just like there's a process to ayahuasca rituals. Um, so, you know, seek seek somebody who is a professional about this and i think it might even be um in some medical areas where they're experimenting with some some aspects of this as well yes. but it but just okay so be patient if you are interested in it it like all things it will eventually come out with a nice formalized process just kind of like cannabis has been as well so don't go running and chasing all the frogs in arizona um but is this the same dmt told that mike tyson keeps talking about yeah yeah that's that's the one um that uh he was served by um one of the better known uh people who serve it's usually just called toad or toad medicine uh, that would be Dr. Jerry Sandoval. And, exactly. Um, he's someone that, uh, he, he's, he's kind of hit some celebrity circles, uh, Dr. Jerry. Um, yeah. And yeah, he gave it to Mike Tyson and it was a profoundly life-changing experience for him. And then Mike Tyson, my understanding, turned on Tony Robbins, who's also the you know, big motivational speaker. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, for some people, they're kind of just discovering this mm -hmm. right now. Um, mm -hmm. I was introduced to 5-MeO-DMT in 2008, and at that time, um, there, there were some underground groups of people who knew what 5-MeO-DMT was, but they weren't making it very public. So mm -hmm. I was one of the first people who was very public about it. And so right, right. This, this, and I, I coined the phrase, uh, two different phrases around 5-MeO-DMT. I called it the God molecule and the crown jewel of entheogens. And at the time, like nobody had heard of it. Lots of people had heard of DMT and ayahuasca, but hadn't heard of 5-MeO-DMT. And I came out with the position that this is the most profound uh, psychedelic neurotransmitter that exists on the planet, just hands down. Um, it's amazing. Um, but now it's, there's, there's more cultural interest. There's even be like, there was an article in Forbes magazine mm -hmm. about the ODMT. Mm -hmm. um, so it's becoming more known, but still not at the, at the general population level, but 
right. more people are learning about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I, 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 I found that very interesting that, I mean, when ayahuasca first came out as, um, as a method to, you know, connect to your higher self um, and get insight into different things that you are dealing with in your life. Um, for some people, they really resonated with it. They got something out of it. For other people, it, they didn't really get anything out of it. And so, you know, um, and so, and same thing with mushrooms. Some people try and they, they get something. Some people, eh, you know, just get a headache. So it, it but with 5-MeO-DMT, what I found that was very different is that on a consistent basis, um, one, they seek somebody who is a professional like Dr. Jerry, um, and, um, and, and they are observed and they watch and all that. And for the consistent message that I hear from people who uh, experience it is um, they are getting kind of transformative experiences into the wheel of dharma and the issues that they deal with in 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 their life so i watched an interview where you actually did an eeg brain scan yeah. while while you were on 5meo dmt and it found that your brain waves um, reach the same gamma waves of high hertz frequency that um, that they found in meditation research for the last 40 or 50 years uh, when they hook up monks and nuns and advanced meditators they were all right. also in the gamma brain waves and the same thing goes in other research um, and for for people who maybe want to study this in college now, colleges now have some of these um, topics in what they call consciousness studies or, you know, mm -hmm. quantum physics studies. So it's kind of coming around. It's slow, but, um, it, you know, it will all get there. But they found that artists and people doing the things that they love also reach gamma brainwaves in those states when they're in that almost kind of meditative do what you love making music whatever process yes. so yes. so it's safe to say that the connection to infinite consciousness resides in gamma waves or maybe even more higher than gamma waves we just haven't got found anything higher yet so um for people who prefer not to take psychedelics to achieve a connection to consciousness, what are your recommendations for getting into that gamma brainwave frequency that you were able to achieve using 5-MeO-DMT? Yeah, well, that's one of the things about it is that it's, it's hard that you know, people can spend their entire lifetime working on a meditation tradition and they might, they might just get there, just, just a little glimpse of it. Um, or they might have really profound experiences, but um, generally, you know, meditation is, it's a slow, methodical process. It's something that generally takes a great deal of time, a great deal of concentration, and a great deal of effort. Um, but that's definitely, it's a way to have these kinds of experiences. Um, another way, as you've mentioned, is for people who, particularly people who have some kind of creative outlet whether it is some form of artistic creation or music, or even people who perform at a very high level in sports. You know, there's this idea of getting in quote unquote, the zone. And most likely, yes, during these time periods,
people are in gamma brainwave states where, you know, like, for example, you know, we, we talked earlier about how I'm a musician. And for me, you know, there's sometimes where I can sit down in front of the computer and it's like, okay, I got my instruments and I, I want to make some music. And then just, it, do, it doesn't work. And it feels forced and it's like, it's not happening. Um, and then there's other times where I'll sit down and then the music, it's like the music is making itself and it's just happening. And like every note is, and it, and it's surprising me as the person creating, it's like, wow, I didn't, I didn't even know I was going to make this. And that's also a way of getting into these gamma brainwaves where, you know, experientially, um, we could say that it, it is the feeling of your individual identity gets out of the way and then simply the pure energy of the act that you are engaged in engaged in just takes place and it and it happens and there is just a level of harmony and a sense of flow the sense of that all resistance is gone and you know i would say another way that people can enter into this is through not through casual sex but through profoundly connected sexual activity with someone that you are in love with that you share your heart with and then there can be that dissolution of boundaries between individuals and so again like going back to music it's a dissolution of boundary between me the musician and the music because the music is coming through me it's just happening i'm not i martin i'm not making it it's happening and so there are ways for people to get into gamma but what's different about 5-MeO-DMT is that it is at such a profound and powerful level that it tends to make other gamma states seem um, not quite as profound. For example, you can take someone who is a very experienced meditator and has had you know, profound experiences of infinite consciousness and infinite being through their meditation. Then you give them an experience with 5-MeO-DMT and almost universally, they will say that was more profound than any meditation I've had. It's similar. It has elements that I can recognize, but the profundity of the experience of 5-MeO is just, it's infinitely infinite and it's very rapid and very powerful. So, and you know, my personal opinion, it's the most effective tool for helping individuals to experience this really profound state of consciousness. And what's wonderful is that you don't have to work at it for years. You just need to be willing to die. You need, be, you need to be willing to let go of your ego and let go of your, your identity. And then just expansion, it just happens naturally. And right, right. So, um, yeah, and that, that kind of goes into um, another thing I wanted to ask about the creative process, because mm -hmm. a lot of people who, I mean, a lot of spiritual people, no matter what religion, tradition, form got in, them into this space, a lot of them are very creative, they're either doing music, they're doing art, they're doing, you know, whatever. Um, and there's, and I always say, whatever meditation process or whatever process gets you to the part where you're not thinking about anything, the monkey mind has completely stopped, the ego in the mind that's constantly running, you know, 360 all over the place, just yeah, all yeah. of a sudden it checks out and it's not there and stop. That's when you get into 
gamma because yeah. gamma is the frequency where you connect to consciousness and consciousness is all and nothing there's there's no ego there's no identity there's no one else it's just it's it so when you get to that part in your meditation or whatever process that's when you get to the gamma brainwave frequency and what i always tell people whatever whatever modality gets you that whether it's 5-MeO-DMT for you or meditation for somebody or if it's making music or making art or gardening or I, I have a couple of different things I write and when I write I don't have any thoughts like I get to the part and it gets and then it just flows like everybody who creates just get to a, a kind of a creative flow and it writes itself or it makes itself and then you just sit back and you surprise yourself you're like that was so good as you're doing whatever you're doing you're like that is really good and you're like surprising the ego they're going that's really good so that's when you know you're in that gamma brainwave frequency um and that's really what it's all about getting into yeah. so okay so that's we've established that there's multiple ways to get into gamma now martin when i was looking at your fractal art as an mm -hmm. artist and i was listening to some of your music it can depending on the brain state, if you really open yourself up to being open-minded, it can induce images of Mandelbrot sets and get someone into a state of calm without ever taking 5-MeO-DMT. Is, is, is your art some form of meditation? Well, uh, you know, the, the way that I make art, it's really, it's more of a process than a meditation. For me, like making music, I would say that's closer to a meditative state for me. Though the art, you know, it, it can be meditative, but the art itself, that the imagery all comes from these, um, you know, more psychedelic states of consciousness, these more expanded states of consciousness. And for me, you know, using fractals and also using a lot of imagery that is very cosmic, you know, that I, I create art that is reflective of these experiences. And so it's not so much a meditation and actually making it, but that it does become a piece that then you can meditate on. And that, yeah, it, just to use really crass hippie language, it's got the vibe to it. It's got <laughs> the vibe that, you know, that even people who have not taken a psychedelic I, you know, this is what people tell me that they look at my art and it's like, wow, I, I'm having an experience just looking at your art. And that, yes, a lot of my music, um, you know, has these dynamic flows to it that can, you know, not everyone, it's, you know, some people listen to it, it's like, ah, I don't like this. But for people who can vibe into the kind of music that I make, it's expansive and it actually is reflective of what these inner journeys are like of opening and expanding in these waves of energy and, you know, these crests and washing out and, um, you know, kind of, a, for me, music is very multidimensional. It just like the art. I mean, the art is made flat on the screen, but it's all, it's multidimensional. So I'm trying, I'm using these mediums to communicate all of this. And I also, you know, and I do that through just straightforward, nonfiction books, but also my fiction books, my novels are also all meant to express all of these things. So I put all these ideas into the plot lines and the experiences that the characters are having. And um, yeah, people tell me, you know, for, 
that sometimes they read my books and they say, wow, and I had an, an experience of expanded consciousness. Or people tell me I listened to an interview and I do think that the resonance carries in my voice that when people really listen to what I'm saying and when I tell them that they are infinite consciousness and that this is who they are, that they can have, you know, there's this thing, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the brain, that there is um, mirror imaging of neurons that actually you can literally vibe into someone else's brain state. So someone who has experienced these things, just being around them or listening to them or interacting with them, that your own brain can then mirror their state. And so these things are transferable in that sense. Right, right. Um, in, um, I think I wrote, in, in Buddhism, and I, I wrote this in uh, my Buddhist Mandala's book uh, series, but in Buddhism and in many um, indigenous traditions, um, they know, and it's been proven in science now, that every single person has a unique energy signature specific to them. Um, it is your aura, your merkabas, your mandalas, whatever. And the higher your energy signature, the higher you go into consciousness, the more effective it is and the more impactful it is to people around it. And so people can feel the energy and it does have a healing quality or maybe a, um, a quality that kind of brings them more into connection to consciousness. So um, this is what they, um, they would call the energy of the teacher, <laughs> Yeah. So, but you can actually see what your mandala looks like um, in semantics research. Just send your voice, and you'll you'll see what your mandala looks like. I send my voice, and mine looks like a Buddhist symbol. <laughs> so, but it's true. What you're saying is true, and they have scientifically proven that. So everybody has energy signature. Now, um, yeah, the thing is, the thing I found really interesting about your art is when I will look at, at your art, we're looking at the two the two D structure of your art. But when I do hypnosis, a lot of my, my hypnosis clients are, um, they've had lifetimes um, as consciousness or as different aspects of um, the universe. And oftentimes they'll describe um, like visions of colors flowing through around them and this and things. Now, if you look at the description of what they're experiencing in hypnosis, but you put that into a 2D picture, it looks very psychedelic. Yeah, and that's, again, because we are psychedelic beings that when, when, see, the thing is that when we're in normal serotonin-based consciousness, we're generally in um, beta waves, okay? So our brain is in beta, and that's how, you know, we're interacting with subject-object duality, and we're thinking about what is myself in relation to, you know, everything else that I'm experiencing but then when we get into altered states of consciousness, such as hypnosis or dreams or meditation or, you know, these other forms of flow that we've been talking about, that at these times, our bodies are producing just slightly, you know, not, not a lot, but slightly more DMT or 5-MeO DMT, and that then that is, I mean, this is where visions come from. This is why people have visions and why visions and visionary states of consciousness look similar to psychedelic states of consciousness because they're actually all mediated by psychedelic neurotransmitters that are produced inside the body. You know, this is 100% natural. You know, that, that's what I love about all of this is that this is just the way our bodies work. And so 
And this is also why you can look at visionary art from pretty much any culture, any time period, anywhere around the world, and you will see the same themes and the same kind of fractal structures, um, uses of symmetry, radial symmetry, bilateral symmetry, um, lattice works, grids, all of this. It's because we are these tryptamine beings, and this is how we mediate our experience of consciousness and our experience of being. And so it's, right. all, it's all coming from the same place. Right, right. Um, your your work and your art and your music, um, you know, people call it psychedelic or whatever, but it's really basically we're looking at images of ourselves. Yes. Because, I mean, they've proven this scientifically, and I've written books about this um, in my Buddhist understanding of Buddhist mandalas, but basically everyone is energy. You are energy. What you are lifetime after lifetime, if you choose to have different lifetime experiences and not release the ego and go back into consciousness or nirvana, um, then you are your, your energy field. You are energy. And so if you, if you take the persona and the storylines that we all play in different lifetimes, that's what you are is moving beams of energy in different colors and different pulsations. And guess what? You are what these artwork that you're looking at is. It's just, you're looking at yourself. Yeah. And that's not the thing about energy. Yeah. The thing about energy is that it's always structured. Right. That it's not, it's not just chaotic, that it's structured. There is geometry and there is mathematics to it. I mean, like you were mentioning, I think about cymatics where you can take take any sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can take any sound and you can resonate a medium and it will create a mandala. It will create these geometric structures that have very precise symmetry to it. And all of energy, that's the thing is that all energy is structured. It's not just chaos we're not in a chaos soup we are standing waveforms of energy riding on the surface of this infinite ocean of being right right that's true it's true scientifically it's been proven over and over again people just you know are are finally maybe hopefully getting to it sooner than later but we are all energy and you're right your everybody's voice has its own energy signature and and if you put it in somatics research it has its own form um, much like sacred geometry and has its own design. And it, as the person raises their energy field in their consciousness, it condenses and becomes um, more complex because it's holding more information. It's holding more light. And I mean, your energy is so much bigger. It can't even be, your body can't even contain it. So yes, you're definitely, definitely true. Um, now let's switch and go from energy to ego. Okay. So, um, so, you know, a lot of people like to blame the ego for negativity in their lives, but ego loves to be loved. It just wants to be acknowledged. And so, you know, ego allows us to have our own identities. Without ego, we would be one with consciousness. That's it. So you want to have your individuality. So, I mean, what wisdom did you discover in, um, in your modality about our relationship with ego. Yeah, well, yeah, I always like to start there, kind of what you've already mentioned, that the ego is a great thing. You know, 
people get into their head that, oh, I've got, that the ego is bad and I've got to kill my ego. And if I kill my ego, then I'll be enlightened. And it's just, ah, it's just a bunch of crap. That the ego is what allows us to function as defined individuals. And it's a fantastic gift because we're taking this uniform consciousness and then we're turning it into different characters. And um, the difficulty with the ego is that it's only an aspect of our true identity, but we identify fully with the identity of the ego and therefore we become unaware of who and what we truly are. But the ego itself, I like to define it as merely a collection of patterns of energy with which we have identified. So it's also energy, just like everything else is energy. So the ego is patterns of speech, patterns of thought, patterns of expression, the ways that we use our body, the gestures that we make, the way we carry ourselves. These are all just patterns that have developed, you know, as from the time that we're kids and we're starting to develop that more complex layer of consciousness that we call the ego, which is not present in other forms of animals. They do not have an ego the same way that we do because we have this self-reflective capacity that we could say, I'm here and I know I'm here and I'm me and I know I'm me and I know I'm not you. And so children, they develop these patterns, which, which they identify, and they learn it from their parents, their society, their culture, their ethnicity, their social status, you know, all of these things play into how people create an ego for themselves. And this is all a normal, healthy process. But there are certain problematic areas of the ego in that the ego often, through the development of our identity, that we choose to align ourselves with ideals or beliefs that maybe are not actually genuine for ourselves and also might be just outright false and incorrect. And then the ego blocks the expression of our natural authentic energy. So in other words, through the ego, people don't say what they really think. They don't express what they really feel, that they want to fit into a social mode or into a certain relational mode to either objects or other people. And so the ego, through these patterns, we create all these withholdings within ourselves that we are these natural beings of expressive energy. We just want to express energy. But the ego says, no, you can't do it that way. Or oh, you kind of sounded like a jerk, or that wasn't nice enough, or that wasn't cool enough, or that wasn't sexy enough, or, you know, all of these standards that we create through our identification. And so it ends up blocking our genuine expression. And then also through the ego, we create a lot of attachments and a lot of projections. And so these are what then hold us back from realizing our own true nature. Now, the good news, again, is that the ego is just a collection of patterns of energy. And we've identified with them, but you can transcend beyond them. And here again, this is where doing creative activity can help you to go beyond the patterns of your ego. Meditation can help to soften and dissolve those. And also, you know, psychedelic tools are ways of disengaging from the patterns of the ego. And in extreme cases, such as with 5-MeO-DMT, the energetic expansion of that molecule actually dissolves temporarily 
the energetic structures of the ego. In other words, from the ego's perspective, it says, oh, I can't hold on. I can't maintain myself to self. And then it dissolves temporarily. And then what's revealed is, oh, we are oceanic awareness. And right. it's just there. Right. The, the, the ego masks that. Right. So now let me ask you a little bit further going in for further into the topic of the ego. Um, you know, um, so the, the ego in your understanding is, which I agree with, allows us to have our identity without the ego, we would be all with, with, with consciousness and we wouldn't have our own identity. So we wouldn't be able to have our seemingly individual um, experiences and growth and triumphs and and all that kind of stuff so it's not a bad thing it's actually part of the human experience is our ego if you want to have an individual human experience separate from the whole you need your ego so stop bashing it like it's this horrible thing that you must kill however the ego from a lot of people in different traditions when they talk about the ego, and especially in Buddhism, uh, when they talk about ego, it's very naive. It's like a naive little child that just wants to be loved, just wants attention. So yeah. like naive little children, it goes for the low-hanging fruit of negativity and the constant feedback and negativity and, oh, you could do so much better. Oh, you're such a piece of crap. Oh, you, all this. You know, it'll pick the low-hanging fruit because that's easy to do. It's easy to do that. It's harder and it needs to be trained how to see the silver linings in negative things and um, in the negative thoughts that it has about different things. Um, to see the silver linings, to transcend the negative, quote, quote, negative issue, learn from it, and then c- create um, with your higher self-conscious, with your own consciousness, creates um, the next best experience um, that's more fruitful and that's more enjoyable for all aspects of yourself. So how, so if somebody doesn't want to blame everything on the ego or the devil and the angel on their shoulders, however, however you want to, <laughs> that's another way a lot of people kind of recognize the ego is this is the devil and this is the angel and they're always fighting with each other. What should I do? What should I do? Um, so if you, if you transcend the ego and um, work with it to uh, work through the negative and see a positive way to kind of, you know, turn it around, how can people um, connect and co-create the, the next best experience, you know, with their ego and their higher self? Because there's two aspects of everybody's personality. There's their consciousness and then there's their ego. So, now we know they both exist as, as a dual consciousness in us for this individual experience. How can we create peacefully with this and stop having that internal battleground that everybody seems to be doing? Yeah, well, I think a lot of that really comes back to cultivating self-awareness about yourself. Um, becoming aware of how you project onto other people or how you project onto situations. And especially, um, you know, for, for people who are really wedded to their religious identity or their spiritual identity, their political identity, um, you know, this is where a lot of egoic conflict arises from. Or even if you're really attached to, um, you know, a specific role that you play within your family, within your job or whatever it is, that again, it's that we're over-identifying with the ego. And so 
it is about cultivating self-awareness about yourself, that all of us are responsible for either being genuine and authentic and giving ourselves permission to truly be ourselves, or we, we are the ones who are responsible. The, the, the way that I talk about it is that the ego is like a prison, but it's a prison that we have created for ourselves. So we are the one in the prison. We are the prison. We are the guard. And we're also the freedom that lies on the other side of all that. So the first thing is learning how to take responsibility for yourself. That, you know, if something disappointed you in life, and then you can use that for your ego, like, oh, I'm the victim. And that was terrible. That happened to me. But you're responsible for the attachment that you put onto any kind of outcome. You are responsible for, you know, people say, well, I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable to be myself in this situation or whatever it may be. Or I was in a relationship and I was compromising myself for this person. Said, but you're responsible for that. That yes, that was a problem of your ego, but you are responsible for yourself. And so first you need to become aware of how is my ego functioning in me? Where is my ego um, holding on to attachments? Where is my ego holding on to beliefs and ideals? And that, that's actually the belief part, that's a really big part because one of, the, one of the functions of the ego in creating an identity is that it wants to understand and control everything. And part of this process is really, I call it liberation through unknowing that when you have a lot of beliefs, because I really want to believe that this is true, then that's going to get in the way of you actually experiencing what is. And the more you can let go of your beliefs, the more you can let go of who it is that you think that you are, and then give yourself permission to discover who you actually are, that's how you get a more harmonious ego. And it's not that, look, there are profound states of consciousness where you temporarily transcend the ego. And I think that those are very important. They're very significant to have those so that then you can really know like, oh, wow, I really am infinite universal consciousness. That's what I truly am. Right. And like then, when you're in the gamma brainwave frequency, the ego has completely checked out because you're now tapping yeah. into consciousness, the universal energy. Yeah. And if you haven't had that experience, then you might believe it you might think it, you might not believe it, but you develop, you know, you have all kinds of ideas about what you think that is or what you think it isn't. Um, and I can guarantee you, or anyone listening, whatever thought you think infinite consciousness and infinite being is, if you haven't had the experience, you don't know what it is. Because every thought that we have is categorized by the ego. So the ego can't understand what is not the ego, but as a conscious being, we have the ability to experience it. And through that experience, it then puts the ego into perspective and it makes it so much easier than to see, oh, this is where my ego is over trying. This is where my ego is holding on. This is where it's attached. This is where it's projecting. So that it becomes, it's all about self-knowledge that you have to learn Self-initiation. Yeah that you have to do it for yourself. And, you know, teachers and guides, those are good. Um, learning from different traditions, that can be good. But ultimately, you have to find it within yourself. 
that it, and, and if it's just your belief, then it's just another aspect of your ego. And right. that, that doesn't serve you. Right, right. So um, I'm going to go a little bit further into this because I would like to get your um, description of nirvana. So the Buddha's interpretation of nirvana, and everybody has a different interpretation, but the, the one that I am familiar with is that it is a state of consciousness that is the, it's the, it's consciousness, it's universal energy, universal one mind, the Lord, God, Allah, whatever you want to call to name it, but it's basically consciousness. And consciousness, this flow of energy, has no experience. It has no identity. It has no, it has no nothing. That's why they call it the spiritual emptiness of nothing. It's like, it's almost equivalent to like, for computer programmers to understand this, it's equivalent to the blue screen of a computer. There is nothing. And from nothing, everything can be programmed into it. You can start creating anything you want. But it, the process of creation from nothing requires polarity, a zero and a one, a here and a there, an up and a down, um, a light and a dark. It be, requires polarity. It requires dualness because without some other to reflect back, there would not be an other. There would just be consciousness, emptiness, yeah. spiritual emptiness, nothing else. So it needs something else to reflect back to it so that it could see, oh, I exist because you exist. So th- that's, a, that's a basic, basic concept of duality in all aspects of creation. And so one way to see the ego is in order for you to have your identity separate from the whole, you need it in your own consciousness because you have your higher self in there. You need something else to look at your higher self and that's your ego. You see that? So um, what is your, from your experience um, of 5-MeO-DMT, what, how would you describe that spiritual emptiness of consciousness, a oneness with that flow of energy in all things and all people. Yeah. So one of the important things that I kind of, I guess I would say this would be in agreement with the Mahayana Buddhists that um, Nirvana, that there's no, there's no fundamental difference between Nirvana and Samsara. You know, in other words, when, when we're talking about these things that sometimes people get the idea like, oh, I live in Samsara now. And nirvana is somewhere over there, or it's some some other realm, and it's it's I'm reaching towards that in some capacity, and um, that was that kind of got taken up in Buddhist teaching and Buddhist philosophy, and then the Mahayanas came around, and particularly Nagarjuna, really dissolved that distinction and said that well, actually, nirvana and samsara are are the same thing, and so one of the ways that we can talk about this is that, look, right now, we're talking to each other. We have two different characters. Vaughn is over there. Martin is over here. We're using Zoom. We're talking on computers. We're in different areas of the world. So we are clearly two different people, and there's various objects that exist um, within the reality that we're experiencing right now. But all of this that we are experiencing is that one universal consciousness experiencing itself 
through two different perspectives. And this also includes everybody who's watching this or listening to this right now. So one of the ways that I describe it, just, just to give people a metaphor for how to kind of visualize just what in the world is going on here, is that I say, there is only one actor, and I call that actor God. I just, I like to use that word. And I don't mean in any religious sense. I just mean universal, infinite consciousness and being that is made of the energy of unconditional love. That's my definition of God. Now, that beingness, that universalness, which doesn't have any one particular identity, is everything that we are ex experiencing, including the thoughts that we are having right now, every sensation we are having right now, the beat of our heart right now, our breath right now, every object we can see, everything we can't see, everything is this universal consciousness that has divided itself into shape and form in order and then evolved itself into these biological beings that then evolved a certain level of consciousness that has self-reflection and self-awareness to the ego that we can then say, hey, I'm me and you're you when we're here, but we still are the universal consciousness. Right, right. And so it, it is everything that we experience all the time. So like if someone says, oh, well, I want to see God, you know, I, I just tell them, well, just look around, <laughs> you know, or go look in the mirror, even better. You want to see God, go look in the mirror and then say hi, because there, there's only one actor playing billions of different characters and all the props at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, that's going to blow a lot of people's minds. And, um, you know, I, I will say this because there are so many different ways to understand the Dharma, which, you know, in Buddhism, Dharma is just another word for reality. Um, your reality, my reality, reality. And um, there's so many different ways. And so everyone in the tradition as they study other traditions will have a different perspective on how they understand it. And it doesn't necessarily matter how you understand it because it's all your process of creating your now moments, all process of creating your Dharma in your, in your energy field, in your, you know, mandala. So, um, you know, like, like, um, like my understanding of samsara, like I said, Nirvana is just a, allness emptiness and samsara my understanding of samsara is the creation of um polarity the creation outside of like the blue screen the creation outside of the nirvana i don't know what direction but i'm just saying the creation of the um polarity so um in order for consciousness to have individuality so they can know itself it had to create all these different fractal expressions of itself, you, me, everybody else. And then um, from these fractal expressions of itself, when we pass on, it also needed polarity or in opposite from the life experience, then there was the spirit world experience. And that's my understanding of samsara, kind of like the, the S infinity <laughs> in the middle is nirvana. That's how I, I that's how I could understand it because it is, it gets very esoteric and it kind of, can put your brain into a big uh, mush uh, trying to understand yeah. it too much but for the way I understand it is um, it, is that infinite s of samsara 
the the life and the non-life that's the polarity and inside the life experience is the wheel of dharma of the coming back to play another round <laughs> this time i'm von galt this time you're martin ball i don't know what we were before but uh we it, we decided not to go back into nirvana quite yet so we're playing another round um but that's my basic understanding of it but bodhidharma um bodhidharma is, is a a legendary buddhist monk he actually started mahayana um and kung fu at the shaolin temple but yeah, and, and cut off his eyelids according to the stories yeah so yeah um I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, he's always he's always pictured with like his eyes bugging out because the story is that he cut off his eyelids so that he could meditate and not fall asleep. Yeah, he's really hardcore. But yeah. anyways, um, there's a lot of he's a lot of funny stories. But anyways, Bodhidharma said this that the path is perfect. That even without any faith system, we will find the path. So, which I totally agree with. Like civilizations come and go um religions come and go but eventually the path will get come to the same realization and i i've marked it down to like kind of a five-step process and i kind of want to get your thought on this as well um because i'm writing my book to uh, buddhist mandalas um but basically the first thing is you have life so you learn about life Okay, you learn about survival, all that. And then at some point in your life, whether it's in this one lifetime or multiple lifetimes, but at some point in your creation, you start being self-aware that reality is just mirroring back to you the things that you are thinking about and feeling. So if you're having issues with your relationship issues, for some reason, wherever you go, everybody's having relationship issues, almost like law of attraction has been some of the words to call it different manifestation techniques, whatever you're working on, but there'll be multiple people with similar issues and they'll have multiple, they'll be in multiple different phases and you'll see how different people resolve the same issue that you're working with so that you can kind of decide through that mirror what you want to do next. So you get to that part of your creation process that you realize that reality is just mirroring what's inside you. And then you get to a point, and it's not in exact order, where the person recognizes synchronicities in reality. They recognize ironic things, like they might be thinking something and all of a sudden it shows up, they'll think something and something will happen. Just, and, like, and, and so it'll kind of pique them to think, oh, is, is this pre-planned or something? Because how is it this, you know, every step is, as I'm working on, every step is coming to form. So they'll start noticing synchronicities. And then once they get to that part of self-realization, at some point they get to recognition that creation is duality and polarity. Up and a down, a light and a dark. Everything in creation needs polarity. And so when they recognize polarity, they eventually get to the part where they recognize nirvana and samsara. And they, they hit it right there, boom. And then they recognize that there's oneness in everything. Everything is consciousness and all things are expressions of that one. And that's the path. And civilizations will come and go. Religions will die eventually. Um, and new ones will be started. But the path is perfect. And you will get, everybody will get that path. And that's what the Bodhidharma is, um, 
expression of his idea of the path that everybody go, eventually goes through. Whether it takes one lifetime or 5,000 lifetimes, they will get to that point. What do you think about that? Like, Yeah, well, kind of the way that I would put it is that, again, since, since universal consciousness isn't somewhere else, it's not, a, we're not talking about another realm. This isn't, this isn't some other place. It's not anywhere to get to that it's actually right here, right now, all the time, right. that the opportunity to recognize that and kind of to use language that you're using here, all of reality is a mirror, that everything you experience is yourself. And through the ego, we've, you know, we said, well, I'm me in this glass of water. Well, that's not me. And the rest of this stuff, well, that's, that's not me. But that's just the ego identity. And so, again, when we can really move beyond the ego identity, we can start to recognize that, oh, actually, all of this is me, not the personal me, but actually all of this is the universal me. And so in that sense, no, you don't need any religious tradition. You don't need any spiritual teachings. Really, all you have to do is pay attention and learn about yourself. And the thing is that most people go through their lives without really learning about themselves, that you know, they develop an ego and then they don't go beyond that. So, I mean, the word that I, or the phrase that I use in my books is I say that human beings are basically God toddlers, you know, or you know, to, just to put it in another uh, perspective, we could say, well, they're like baby Buddhas. You know, one of the teachings of Buddhism is that, well, everyone's the Buddha, you know, it's particularly in Mahayana Buddhism. Yep. Everyone is the Buddha. And that doesn't mean everyone is going to realize within their lifetime that actually they are that. But the truth is you already are that. And so the only one who's standing in the way of you recognizing that is you. And that's where, again, it goes back to self-responsibility, that if you take the responsibility of really learning about yourself, everyone can then come to the same conclusion. And it doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter what their beliefs are, especially if they're willing to let go of their beliefs. See, this is where the Eastern religions, generally speaking, fare better than the Western religions, that the Western religions are based on... Um, a transcendent model of divinity and that humans need to worship the divine, whereas the Eastern traditions of Buddhism and Hinduism uh, in general, and also Taoism, really yeah. teach that, well, actually, you then, are that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah There's that nothing you, to worship. Yeah, that you well, are it, that. So, And that yeah. they, they promote experiential methodologies to help people experience these things. And so, yeah, there's, there's metaphysics and there's symbol systems and there's mythologies, but all of that, I mean, if we look at Buddhist art, you know, you got Buddha over on one side pointing his finger and on the other side is the moon and the moon represents enlightenment. And so everything that Buddha is teaching is he's just like, I'm trying to show you that you are this. So it's not, if you get into like, oh, I worship the Buddha, you've missed the point that the Buddha is trying to say, look, you are the Buddha too. You are the Buddha. And it's up to you to realize that. And, but again, it takes paying attention. And so people, and because we are free, you can sleepwalk through your whole life. And you can and be you a can, master of sleepwalking through your whole life. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, everybody so, is their own ascended master. So if you want to be the ascended master of sleepwalking through your whole life, then you're doing a wonderful, fantastic job. You could teach anybody how yeah. to do that. You are the guru of that technique if yeah. you want to. Yeah. So it, it's up to the individual. They, mm -hmm. If they really have, and you know, in Buddhism, this is called the awakening of, of bodhicitta, of, of awakening of the, the Buddha mind, of having the desire. But first you have to have the desire, you know? And so we, you like ask me about my story. Well, yeah, when I was first introduced to Buddhism, I was like, oh, well, this is really interesting, right? And of course it's the ego that finds that interesting. And that, so first, there has to be some kind of egoic desire to, whoa, I want to learn who I truly am. I want to learn what I really am. And, but then eventually you have to go beyond the ego, right? Right. Um, so like in Zen, you know, they started with the Enso with the empty circle. And then, then there's the guy who gets the ox and then he's riding the ox and that's studying Buddhism. And then eventually the guy disappears and the ox disappears. And then it's just the empty circle again. Right. It, that's yeah. the process because look, it's already right here. You don't have to go anywhere for yep. it, but, yep. but you do have to pay attention. You got to pay attention to the Dharma. If you pay attention to the Dharma, you will notice these things and the path is perfect. Just like Bodhidharma says. So, um, and all, I mean, all many traditions, uh, Native Americans, the Vision Quest, the 5-MEO DMT, many traditions have different ways of seeing reality and the Dharma. But if you pay attention you're going to get to the same space. Um, but you have to be open-minded to notice reality as it's being created by you to realize, and realizing that makes, like, makes you, like the, the, the definition of a Buddha is someone who is aware of the matrix. They're aware of the Dharma. And that's basically it. They're awake within reality because they're paying yeah. attention. That's all it is. And everybody yeah. is an ascended master they're just not acting like it because they're pretending to be not it so they can yeah. find it. <laughs> so. Yeah. And the, and the point is, is that it, it, that it's, it's right here. It's not somewhere else, you know, and that, um, you know, like in, in Buddhism, like in early Buddhism, um, they say that, well, Buddha reached Nirvana at his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. And then upon his death, he reached Parinirvana which means just there's no remainder, right? It's not like Buddha went somewhere. This is like the, the person, Siddhartha Gautama Shakyamuni, dude's gone. He's just, he's gone. He's not here anymore. Um, but that the Buddha mind is here because that's, that's what is, is the Buddha mind. So yeah. the person is gone, but it's not like Buddha is floating out around somewhere out there yeah. and like, oh, I want to contact Buddha. Because it's it's actually it's right here. This 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 is what it's meant by that form is emptiness, emptiness is form, samsara is nirvana, nirvana is yeah. samsara. That all form is empty. Right, right. So uh, yeah. Now let me ask you this. Um I have a couple more questions. That, um, but you know, in the animal kingdom, if you're not part of the pack, you die. <laughs> okay, that's just the animal kingdom. However, beyond infancy, people can survive on their own. It's just not ideal. My question with, with this is, why do humans need approval and acceptance from others so much? Is it ego? Is well, it DNA? What is it? Well, it's, it's definitely, it's a combination of both. It, we have to recognize that our 
our egos developed among highly social animals, okay? The great apes, you know, these are very social animals and that, um, you know, that there is no ape species that is solitary. They all live in family groups. And so the family dynamic is part of our ancestral genetic DNA and the, not just the, the family group, but then the tribal group. And, you know, even great apes, different tribes of great apes go to war with each other. They do battle each other. So they have, they do have a sense of group identity and family identity. And that within that, the social structure is very important. So that's what we, as human beings, we evolved out of that animal matrix. So we come from um, a, a life form in which the social relationships are very important and they determine who gets to groom who, who gets the food first, who gets, in, who gets to mate with whom, who is in charge of where the group goes and what the group does. So this is just part of our, our genetic makeup. And then the ego is forming within that context. So then the ego then is amplifying all of these aspects of our basic animal nature into personal identity that fits into the group identity that has some kind of social hierarchy and has different roles that different. So the ego is trying to find ways to help you survive. It's trying oh, absolutely. to protect, protect you yeah, and protect it, it from dying. Okay. Do you think it's because, um, it's because we, I don't know, we need to transcend survival? Just take it out of the equation? Well, you know, to, to some degree, I mean, it, in, in order to really fully immerse yourself in the transcendent, non-dual state of infinite consciousness, yes, you have to let go of any thought of survival. Because survival, um, you know, it's a basic animal instinct, but it also is deeply enraptured with our ego, with our sense of identity. So, you know, for example, with the 5-MeO-DMT experience, you know, this is something that you generally smoke or you're vaporized. It comes on very, very quickly, within a couple heartbeats. And in those first few seconds, the ego thinks, oh, man, this is it. I've done it this time. I'm going to die. I'm dying. I mean, it really fully is 100% convinced that it's dying and it's never coming back. And at that moment, if the ego can say, okay, I give up all attachment. I let go. Then you enter into universal consciousness. If yeah, the ego, ego says, if the ego says, no, wait, but then I'm never going to see my mom again, or I'm never going to see my kids again. I don't want to go, that the ego can fight with it the whole time. So there, there is this sense of survival. And so in order to enter into the fully transcendent state of consciousness and really reside there, yeah, you do need to let go of any sense of personal survival and any kind of personal maintenance of the self. It's, it's a willingness to let it all go. And then... The great ironic magic trick is that as soon as the molecule wears off, when the energy dies down, 
ego comes right back online because it's just the natural biological function. And it's then- a function of your individual experience. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, the thing about survival that's, that I find very interesting is survival really plays into all aspects, most aspects of our life, you know, to what kind of career do we do we focus on the person that we marry? Are they going to be able to provide? Are they a winner? Uh, are we going to get in a career that's going to pay the bills? You know, you know, make sure that we have in some societies, make sure we have a boy so they can take care of us because the girls are not going to be able to hold down whatever the concept is in, in male um, preferred societies or even, um, you know, like what, what kind of school are you going to go to? Well, that school is not going to have a good enough reputation to get you a good job, to take care of you. So as you can see, when we go through all the different aspects of our life, even the people they associate with, some people associate with them because they have a status that's going to help them or they have a connection that's going to help them. They're going to network and rub elbows of people who's going to help them lift up their finances, you know? So if you look at a lot of different areas of our life, survival is playing a very sophisticated game and a mask in the way that we see reality and the way that we engage with each other and reality. And um, it is that fear of not surviving, uh, of not being able to take care of yourself or your family or your loved ones. It's that fear of lack of being able to survive that really is hiding behind a lot of the decisions that people are making in their life. That's really not bringing them a lot of happiness. Yeah. They're not happy in their career. They're not happy in their relationship. They're not happy in X, Y, Z, you know, because they're making decisions not on what they, their heart wants or what makes them happy and gets into that gamma brainwave all the time frequency, but instead they're making decisions on survival on beta. Yeah. So um, that's what I find very fascinating is that like, I, when I ask different people, like, how can we uh, as a global society transcend survival so we create a society or, or slowly build the blueprints in a society where we can be conscious of the physical experience and we can house and shelter and feed everybody and make it to a, to a society almost kind of like, um, like Star Trek you know and those those, those yeah, the, yeah. i mean the, the best analogy is star trek they're all doing what they love nobody really has to work but they're just choosing different experiences like i'm gonna go do this experience because that's the experience i think is fun or i'm gonna do but there really is no real like jobs unless you want one so um because everybody can um teleport where they want or they can put in the microwave what food they want. So all the survival instincts are already there. So the way that they see things and the Dharma and reality is very, very different. And um, that is a closer projection to a, what I call an enlightened society. When you take out the low beta state of consciousness that always worried about survival. I mean, do you have, what do you, what do you think about kind of like, how can, how can we as a society transcend survival? I mean, yeah, well, at some level, I think that we, we can't really transcend survival 
because I mean, that is a biological necessity. I mean, if we want to exist, I mean, it's one thing that look, in some spiritual traditions, there have been masters where there's like, okay, well, I'm just going to go spend the rest of my life meditating. And if I starve to death while that happens, that's okay, because I'm not attached. But, you know, if we want there to still be human society, and if we also want there to be a healthy ecosystem, that there does need to be some kind of rational consideration of what actually is best. But what you were describing is all the different hangups of the ego, you know, where people end up doing things because they've convinced themselves that they have to, or that they're doing things that actually don't make them happy, that are not genuine, that people force themselves to play roles, they withhold what they genuinely think and genuinely feel that, you know, you can, you, you can still work on your survival, but come at it from a place that is not as muddied and um, convoluted as the ego makes it to be. And so really what we want is, again, just like we don't wanna kill the ego, we want, we want actually a healthy, healthy functioning ego one that serves the individual, right? So that one way to look at each of us is that we all have the gift of the life that we're living and we're experiencing and that just to throw it away, well, that seems kind of careless, right? So that there is a basic, you know, I do need food, I do need water, I do need shelter. Um, but, you know, do I really need to make a billion dollars while I'm seeing billions of people starving? I mean, right. what, what's, what's running that? Okay, right. what, so is, that what, what, is, what is the point of being a billionaire if you can't use it to help people in their lives, help them? Yeah. I mean, we live in a time where there are millionaires and billionaires um, in this planet and there's no point in all that money. Why not take that and go to the poorest countries and make sure that they have clean water, make sure that they have um, a, a good soil to plant or provide the resources to plant and grow food, maybe like a vertical farming or indoor farming, whatever, whatever the solution is, different solutions. Make sure that there is um, solar energy you know what good is a trillion or billion dollars when you die yeah and this is where and that's all know, ego think, yeah this is where i think that the buddhism has some good tools where the basic teaching is compassion that look when you really recognize the true nature of reality that we are actually all one consciousness just experiencing itself from different perspectives right that means that Every other person I interact with is another version of me, not another version of Martin, but another version of the Buddha mind, another version right. of God, another version of universal consciousness. And so that really, yes, we have survival needs, but let's temper that with compassion and that there are better ways of interacting with right. each other. There, right. there are better ways of expending our energy. There are better ways of focusing ourselves than on the perpetuating of the individuated self and the need for greed and more and more and more. And, you know, that's right. why in Buddhism, in the Wheel of Samsara, you know, we've got 
the cock chasing the pig, chasing the dog. Uh, I forget, I think those are the three in the middle. But the yeah. idea is that, you know, that these desires and need for self-approval and all of that, that that's just running us ragged. Mm-hmm. And that the way out of that is by expending c- compassion, you know. Right, loving, recognizing. Loving, loving kindness. Right. What I, one thing that I, I think a lot of people are hopefully working on sooner than later is recognizing recognizing themselves in other people like namaste i see you and me and me and you we are one we you recognize consciousness in everything now um let me ask you um this last question there seems to be when it comes to the space of manifesting within your own dharma or your own reality two groups of manifestors one group play are you familiar with the term mandela effects or reality shifts yeah Okay, so one group plays off Mandela effect as faulty memory or delusion. So there's only one reality and that's no other versions. That's it. Everybody else is faulty memory or delusion. There's another group of people in the space who um, are kind of like the leading edge experiencers of reality shifts. And they say that there's a multiverse. Now, in Buddhism, like I said, all things have duality. In order to have multiverse, there needs to be one. <laughs> in order to have one, there needs to be multiple. It's that, it's that push-pull. That's how they can know themselves is to see the opposite. So um, what is your perspective on this back and forth conversation of multiverse, one, one universe? What, what, what's yeah. your, from Five Mule DNT? Um, honestly, my position is that there's some misidentification going on. So when, often when people talk about a multiverse, they, they say, well, in this universe, Martin is talking to Vaughn on Zoom right now. But in another universe, Martin is outside walking his dog, okay? And then, and then there's infinite permutations of Martin across multiple different universes. And that's where I just say, look, that is purely egoic thinking. That look, the universe that we live in is the multiverse. There's another version of me right now making different choices, living a different life right now. There it is. Mm-hmm. And then I can look around. There's what, 7 billion people on this planet? There's 7 billion different versions of me having a different experience of reality right now. This is the multiverse and it's only one. It's a universe. It's the one thing that we're all experiencing right now. So I think that there's, there's a lot of egoic projection that goes into ideas of what quote unquote the multiverse is that, that people want to personalize. It's like, yeah, well, there's, there's, there's another version of me out there that just won the lottery. And there's another version of me out there that, you know, just got hit by a car. So, wow, I'm glad I'm at least this one, even if I'm not the one that won the lottery. That's just, that's an egoic way of thinking about it. And in my opinion, it's just completely faulty thinking. But that's just, it's just extending the ego even more. And what we want to do is we want to, we want to tame the ego. Let's, let's bring it under control. But it, it actually plays into people's egoic fantasies of what they think the self is. And the ego is merely a character that is identified with your particular body that is the universal consciousness experiencing itself in this place and this time. That's all that the ego is. There's not, and, there's not other versions of Martin out there. Right. There's only one. 
And what, what about, let's say that there's one version of Martin, but what about if there are elements in your reality that change from the, how you last remembered? What, what would you say on, like, let's say that your wonderful dog back there all of a sudden has spots that you never saw the next day. Like patterns all of a sudden, like, mm, okay, that's different. I know this dog. What about that? Well, that's something I myself have never personally experienced. So, you know, I can't really say other than, you know, look, human memory is inherently problematic. Okay. There's plenty of um, work has been done that show how easy it is to manipulate people's sense of memory. And it's actually something that's very easily socially conditioned, right? That you can, if you, you know, they do these experiments where, they put the subject in a room with 10 other people and they all, the 10 other people all say, no, no, this is what happened. This is what happened. Even if that person knows like, no, that's not what happened. They will eventually say, yeah, that's what happened. And then see, every time we call up a memory, what, what we think we're doing is we think that we're reviewing the past. We are not reviewing the past. We are recreating a virtual reduplication of the past in the present and therefore it's always going to be colored by the present so memory is not a reliable interpretation of what happened before okay. now this is where what what i what i like to say is look energy is real energy leaves traces Okay, in the same way that, you know, I can go over to the mountains over here and I can look at the different geological strata. And that, then we can say, okay, well, this year, this, we can see this was a drought, here there was a flood, here there was a fire, right? Because energy leaves traces of what transformations occurred. And so that when we review the energetic data, that's what gives us a more accurate picture of what the past was, but really all that exists is the present. Right, right. Let me ask you this. Since this, this is very central to the Mandela effect. What would you say about people who remember that Nelson Mandela died in prison? They watched it, they remembered it. And people who say, no, he died as the president of South Africa. They remember it, they have real experiences and other people to corroborate where and what they were doing at that time in both scenarios. What would you say to that? How does that well, play into consciousness? Honestly, for me, I would need to talk to someone like that. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. So I, in general, I, this is funny. This is, this is a very ironic statement I'm about to make. In general, I don't like to make generalized statements. <laughs> that like, if, if we're, when it comes down to reality and what someone is perceiving or thinking of as reality, that I would actually want to talk to that person and kind of get a feel for what is their energy and how connected or disconnected this person seem to be and learn about this person. What, what is their past? You know, that in other words, I don't just want to say, Oh, well, I think they're just making it up or maybe they're confused. It's like, well, I want to know this person before passing any kind of judgment on right. what I think is going on with them. Right. So, so I mean, so so now you we go, we go back to it. There's two groups of um, people. One, there's a single universe. 
to there is a multiverse and you know you're going through you're shifting through different realities because things are different than what you physically experienced before so because i've been to forums where there are thousands of people and at the same time they ask the question the same question and then they'll type in their answer of what they were doing at the time the through the poll and then they'll show it at the same time so everybody's live there's no you know nobody's got skin in the game and you'll get the two the two groups and so and it's very fascinating and so it, it you know um in buddhism we say all is good in samsara <laughs> whatever works in your creation process um is fine but um but that is what i ask everyone and but the thing that I, I always get is people who in the space say that it may be faulty memory, oftentimes like yourself, never had that experience. And people who on the other side who say, I've had that experience, I've had multiple experiences, will speak from firsthand experience and people who corroborate from their firsthand experience as well. So I just find that very fascinating. Um, that again, there's two groups of manifestors of reality. And that yeah. it goes well, back see, into that dual nature of reality, of creation. Yeah. But you know, ultimately, I am very skeptical of pretty much anything. And so mm-hmm. for if if someone wanted to claim something that that disagreed with either my experience of reality or the general consensus of reality, especially at a historical level, then I would ask, well, where, where is your proof? Can you, what can you provide other than this was your perception or this was your experience, you know, that I'd like to see that. And it's, it's nothing that I have personally investigated. You know, I've heard of the Mandela Mandela effect or Mandela effect, Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. you know, and I've, I've seen stuff about it online, but I've never investigated it. It hasn't personally caught my interest. So, you know, I'm just speaking about it as an, as an outsider. Right, but, right. Like if, you know, when, if somebody says, um, you know, oh, my guru le- le- levitated off the ground, you know, I'd want to see like, well, I'd like to see that myself, you know? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, can we, can we see that? You know, right. I, I'd like to see some kind of proof. Right, you know? right. And, I mean, here, for example, um, you know, my own personal position uh, as someone coming from religious studies and who is not a religious person, um, like, for example, I have a lot of questions about the historical reality of this supposed person named Jesus. I find it curious that there's no historical evidence that this person actually existed. There is historical evidence it's in Buddhism, but that's a whole different interview. <laughs> yeah, that, that's I thought interviews on that, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've done like whole interviews on, on, on explaining that, but there, there is plenty of um material but it's not how the west knows it to be but um but even in like art history of buddhism they have always have the art history imagery of the different teachers and their multiple hands or heads or whatever and that's their 2d portrayal of the teacher traveling through different dharmas different realities it's not that kuan yin does not have ten thousand hands at once that's different portrayals of her in different realities going from 
you know, and then when you see it all once, it's like she has 10,000 hands. But that's the, the art history in Buddhism when you study the teachers' um, mandalas. So again, going back to the age-old, how do you see the Dharma? So, all right. Well, I, you know, do you have any last things to tell people at this time during um, kind of like d during times of trouble, how can they manifest a higher reality for themselves, whether they're a singular reality or they, they see a, a multiple option? Well, really my best advice is, you know, take responsibility for yourself because that's really the only thing you have any amount of any control over is yourself. That um, if, if you are feeling stifled in your life, you know, it's up to you to do something about it. If you feel that you're not being authentic, it's, it's up to you to change that. If you, if you feel that you are not receiving love in the way that you want it, well, then, you know, you got to learn to love yourself, right? It's, it's all about personal responsibility um, as far as I see it. And that really understanding that, you know, everything that we're experiencing again, is all this one consciousness experience in itself and it comes in multiple forms and that you, as the egoic individual, you're not in control. That the universal consciousness is in control of the universal consciousness. And so letting go of the need to control and then taking responsibility for being yourself, that's where true freedom lies. That's where true authenticity lies and that's where you discover the deepest parts of yourself wonderful well well said and you know with every single episode it's always very enlightening to kind of hear another perspective on the dharma and how to create within the dharma and so like i always say take what resonates with you um you don't need to know all the all the tools <laughs> Use what you need at the time that you need it. So Martin has some really, really good material um, as well. Um, and, you know, Martin, I could talk to you. It's always been fun to discuss these topics. These are my favorite topics. So um, a lot for people to kind of like sink their teeth into and kind of gnaw on a little bit like, hmm, that's a good point. That's a good point. So um, if you want to know more about Martin's offerings or to book a consultation, because he does do consultations, you can visit his website, which is martinball.net. And um, for everyone, thank you so kindly for listening to another enlightening conversation. Until next time, blessings. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Merkaba Chakras, where we talk Buddhism in the fifth dimension. For more information about today's guest, please go to the show description. For more information about Vaughn's metaphysical work, please go to MerkabaChakras.com. The views expressed today are for entertainment purposes and do not necessarily reflect the views of the host or replace any medical or legal advice. Don't forget to subscribe for more interviews about the fifth dimension. Until we meet again, blessings.